it up. <laughs> All right. Sorry about that. On Sundays from 1 to 3 EST, I teach a class about this book, Capital Volume 1. Uh, and it went a little bit over time today. So I had this plan for right after the class ended. But that is why we're starting late. But we are started now. So I am excited to get into it. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the article that I wrote uh, for the Daily Beast that uh, that came out uh, a couple days ago uh, about the um, about the results of the uh, the midterm elections. Uh, the article is called uh, "Democrats Averted Disaster, but the Working Class Did Not," which um, you know. I, I ended up reusing it as the name of this column just just because it was easy, and I didn't you know wouldn't have to think of anything. That's the name of the article. Uh, I actually, I'm not sure that that totally captures the argument of the article, but at least it introduces all the right subjects. Uh, so um, so it gives you an approximate idea if the grounds can be covered, even if it's not you know. I mean the conclu- I mean I guess that's I guess both halves of that are true uh in a larger sense but anyway you'll see what I'm actually saying in the article in just a moment even if you haven't read it I'm going to start talking through some of the crucial claims uh and then we will um and then I'll I'll open it up if anybody wants to call in and kind of chat about any of it sort of share your own thoughts or ask questions or um mention things that are related or make devastated objections to my arguments in the piece all those are fine. Um, so the first sentence of the article is the Democrats have averted disaster for now. Um, now we know a little bit more information uh, than uh, than we did uh, when I was first writing this article, which I think was on Wednesday. Um, yeah, the election was on Tuesday. I think I I think I uh, I think I filed this like very late Wednesday night. Um, if I'm remembering, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, so since very late Wednesday night, we do know a little bit more information, but I think, uh, what we know just kind of like, um, fills in the details. The, uh, the basic picture is, uh, is what I, uh, is, is what I lay out in the article, which is that, yeah, the Democrats, uh, narrowly averted disaster, but that is the way to, 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 to put it. And, um, even though they have narrowly averted disaster, it's it's hard to avoid this uh, sneaking feeling that their current strategy is running on fumes. Now, I do think there are important regional exceptions to this. We can talk about this uh, as we go on, but just uh, you know, just thinking a little bit about the um, the sort of broader national picture, um, there you know there is a really clear sense that you get when you start to look at his uh, at these election results. That uh, what Democrats are are pitching just just isn't uh, isn't getting enough takers to make any kind of uh, big breakthrough in their direction. I mean, look at what happened in this race. Um, basically, as far as the Senate goes, um, Democrats clog on by their fingertips to the exact status quo um, last week. They had the narrowest mathematically possible majority in the Senate, which is to say that it was divided exactly 50-50. So that counts as a majority because uh, Vice President Kamala Harris was able to cast tie-breaking votes. And as of to now, uh, we know that the, the number going into 2023 is going to either continue to be exactly 50-50 if Warnock loses his runoff, 
or it's going to be 5149. But either way, I mean, you know, 51, you know, 5149 would be the narrowest possible majority uh, without a Democratic vice president to, uh, to break ties. Uh, 50-50 is the narrowest possible majority with a Democratic vice president to break ties. Either way, that's basically maintaining the status quo, which is to say that the Democrats control the Senate, but just barely. That was true before the election. That's going to continue to be true after the election. Meanwhile, in the House of Representatives, um, the uh, the Democrats lost ground. Right? They narrowly controlled the House before the election, and whereas this isn't certain yet, because there are still, I think, about 20, 20-ish races around the country that haven't been called yet, uh, votes are still being counted, um, but the most likely thing is that the the Republicans will have retaken the House. Certainly, the Republicans will have gained seats. That part's not in doubt. But whether they'll have gained enough seats to regain control of the House is still in doubt as of right now. So if you're graded on a curve, in other words, you're baking in the absolutely dismal situation the Democrats were in going into this election, then it looks like a great victory because, uh, hey, they didn't lose too bad. Right, that they uh, they managed to to maintain just barely controlling the Senate, and they didn't lose that many seats in the House. Uh, although they did probably lose control of the House, but if you don't bake that in, then this looks pretty dismal. Um, and and I think it looks even more dismal if you start to think about some long term trends. So I say in the article. Even as President Joe Biden and his party described the GOP as, quote, semi-fascist, unquote, as Biden famously said, and never miss an opportunity to remind the nation of the January 6th riot at the Capitol, early polling suggests that Republicans have actually continued in this election cycle as they did in the last election cycle, as they did in the one before that, to pick up a to, – to increase their share of the black and Hispanic vote, right, which is if you – you know, I mean, if you think like the Republicans or white supremacist fascists is a confusing result, right? How is it that they're actually, uh, as they, they lead further and further in this direction, they're actually picking up uh, black and Hispanic support? I don't say that, by the way, to deny <laughs> uh, the Republicans are racist. I think in many cases they're very racist, but, uh, you know, it, it depends what you mean a little bit. But I mean, I, I think that the, I think there's been plenty of, uh, appealing to white anxiety and, and so on. But, uh, you know, it does suggest that emphasizing that, oh, these guys are fascist angle has relatively little traction uh, electorally. Slogans like democracies on the ballot uh, play well with a certain kind of managerial professional strata of the population, but they, uh, you know, I, I unkindly suggested the article uh you know, managers at nonprofits uh, listening to NPR, their cars, and their way to work. But they move the needle a lot less with working class people who can tell perfectly well that the current version of American democracy isn't uh, performing for them, right? It isn't giving them the things that they want and need. And while solid majorities of Americans have basically progressive views on social policy issues, um, and I, I would I do not suggest and would not suggest that anybody gets thrown under the bus as far as social policy goes. Uh, using language so performatively inclusive, uh, think birthing people, that it sounds strange and synthetic to anybody who went to a state university instead of a liberal arts college, is going to do nothing to stop the slow purpling of traditionally democratic constituencies. Uh, 
Um, so I suggest, again, this is a direct quote from the article, if Democrats want to do more going forward than just limp from barely averted disaster to barely averted disaster, they need a winning message on the material issues most immediately relevant to the lives of ordinary voters. As one of my all-time least favorite Democrats once put it, it's the economy, stupid. Uh, it's a phrase associated with Bill Clinton. Uh, I think James Carville is the one who actually said it, but whatever. They're both among my very least favorite Democrats, obviously, as, as awful neoliberal ghouls. But if the economy is stupid, it's an important point. Right? You know, uh, you appealing to people's unmet material needs um, is would actually move the needle in a way that um, in a way that this other stuff does not. Now, I continue to say, I do think there is a version of democracy is on the ballot that might move a broader segment of the electorate, but it would have to be a more grounded one. Accusations of fascism tend to involve a big enough dose of hyperbole to be ultimately unpersuasive. And I'd argue that tenuous analogies between present right-wing authoritarianism, which is real, and the brown shirts of yore obscure more than they clarify. Could a future presidential election be stolen? Absolutely. It's happened before. But if it happened again, it would be way more likely to happen, at least in broad strokes, the way it happened in the Bush v. Gore election in 2000 by means of guys wearing suits and ties operating within established institutions rather than by means of proud boys wielding uh, lead pipes somehow overwhelming the leviathan of the American national security state. Now, none of this is to say that I don't think it makes sense for uh, Democrats to criticize uh, Republican-dominated state legislatures that pass laws that are designed to make it more difficult to vote um, and oftentimes we have lots of confessions from Republican legislators saying, yeah, I'm doing this because I don't want there to be, you know, I'm afraid that if we don't do it, we're not going to win more elections. In other words, I'm afraid that uh, too many of the wrong people are going to vote or to express alarm at the election of uh, Republican secretaries of state who trafficked in conspiracy theories about the 2020 election. Those things are indeed alarming and it makes sense to be alarmed by them and to say that you're alarmed by them. But here's the problem. When the democracy under threat is an abstraction with no obvious tangible connection to the issues with the most immediate impact on voters' lives, then the whole democracy is on the ballot thing can ring a little hollow to all but the most dialed-in liberal partisans. After all, I say in the article, it's not like elections don't keep happening or Democrats don't often win those elections. Um Right. I may say, well, we're an imminent threat of democracy going away when, you know, they're just a bunch of elections and Democrats won and nobody stopped them can ring a little bit hollow. Uh, and um, especially when people with other kinds of concerns are often more pressing to a lot of ordinary voters, like the price of food, the price of gas, the price of pharmaceuticals. Now. Uh, I. I do think that there um, that there is a way that these issues could be connected, and if you connect that way, um, and that if you connect them that way, this could actually be a much more powerful message. Um, as so, I quote um, progressive journalist Ryan Grimm, who is 
you know, he just started a show with a conservative named uh, Emily Jashinsky, Counterpoints, um, on, I guess it's now like the Breaking Points Network or something. I'm not quite clear on what the structure is there. But uh, I listened to part of an episode that Grimm and Jashinsky did of Counterpoints, and Grimm, I think, said something really smart that's worth kind of highlighting and circling and underlining here, uh, which is that he said a far more effective pitch would be that Republicans want to undermine democracy so they can fleece you. In other words, connect the kitchen table issues to the democracy issue. And in fact, there is an abundance of evidence that fleecing is what they have in mind. So we have, for example, um, people, uh, you know, we uh, may remember this is the episode we did on Monday with Bronco uh, Marchetich, about, you know, where I interviewed him about his Jacobin article about exactly this. Um, we have, you know, what I call the article a signed confession from uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, uh, possibly now Speaker Kevin McCarthy, probably now Speaker Kevin McCarthy, depending on how some of these last races are called. Um, so what I'm calling his signed confession is this commitment to America document that he put out um, where he openly announces his intention to, quote, unquote, save Social Security and Medicare by cutting benefits. The save part is nonsense on stilts. The plan is simply to steal promised benefits from elderly people who have paid into the system their entire lives and who would, in any case, deserve a secure and dignified retirement, even if they hadn't been paid into the system their whole lives. Um, but, you know, the point is that, you know, when they were paid into it, that was with the promise that everybody had that they're going to get these uh, these benefits. Um, now, we're often told, and this is what McCarthy is relying on, that Social Security is, uh, quote, economically unsustainable, unquote, or it will, quote, become insolvent, unquote, and that cutting benefits, which is what uh, it's a little bit technical and maybe not worth getting into here, but it's the way that McCarthy puts it in the Commitment to America document is about raising the retirement age. What that really means is raising the age at which full benefits will kick in, but what it amounts to is a, is a cut in the level of benefits that people get. So we're told that, oh, no, no, but this is actually, you know, sure, you're cutting Social Security and Medicare, but you're not you're cutting it to save it because it's going to go broke. It's going to go bankrupt. If you don't cut it, it's going to become insolvent. That's what we're constantly told, and that is pure, uncut bullshit. Uh, to see why it's pure, uncut bullshit, I would recommend that people check out. I linked to some of this in my article, some of what Matt Brudig has been putting out about this at the uh, People's Policy Project. Um, but essentially, this is the point, that the, uh, the Social Security program, just to focus on that example, can't become insolvent because the way the law is currently written builds in a solvency requirement. If Social Security taxes don't generate revenue sufficient to pay out benefits at the originally projected rate, that triggers an automatic benefits cut. That's the way the law is written right now. But as Brunig points out, the law can easily be amended to state, quote, that whatever revenue falls short of scheduled benefits, the Social Security payroll tax will automatically be increased to make the two sums balance. In other words, the way the law is written right now, uh, if at the currently projected rate of uh, Social Security taxation and payout of Social Security benefits, there isn't enough, you know, enough uh, Social Security tax being collected to pay out the benefits uh, that recipients are scheduled to get, that triggers an automatic benefits cut to make the uh, the uh, the sums balance. Whereas 
Bruno points out, look, you could just, you know, that's the way it happens to work right now, but you could just as easily amend the law so that when that situation came up, there was an automatic uh, social security tax increase to make the the, uh, benefits balanced that way. Or you could even, he points out, just have that automatically triggered increase only apply to incomes over $150,000 a year. And you still wouldn't have to have, the increases still wouldn't be that much to make the sums balance. So this idea that, oh, it's about to go broke is just news from an alternate dimension. Uh, so I think I'm stealing from myself for the Curtis Yarvin debate there, but anyway, it doesn't matter. That's the, you know, it, it's just wildly untrue. Uh, and it's, um, and it's really, once you get that, right, once you get the way that works, you can really see that it's particularly nonsensical for Kevin McCarthy to say he wants to prevent insolvency by which he just means automatically triggered benefit cuts through benefit cuts that he's proposing that are actually steeper than the automatically triggered ones, if you look at the numbers. So he's saying, oh, no, we, we can't let Social Security go broke, by which he just means that the current the way the law is currently written would automatically trigger you know benefit cuts uh rather in order to prevent that from happening we have to cut benefits by more than they're going to be cut right now it's a it's a bad joke the reality of the situation as suggested in the article is better described by the late uh, george carlin's classic warden that the ruling class in this country is a big club that most of you aren't in and they're coming for your social security. Um, they're going to steal it to give it to their uh, rich friends on Wall Street. Remember when Carlin said that? I really wish that Colin right now had uh, the screen sharing feature so I could play you a minute of that Carlin clip. Uh, but in any case, uh, the video is embedded in my article, so just go check that out. Uh, the, uh, the link to my article is in the description. So pointing all this out, this is, this is where I get back to the point about democracy could have been productively combined with the point about the Republicans' anti-democratic instincts. So here's what Biden could have spent the last year telling people. Hey, these assholes want to make it harder for you to vote so you can't vote them out when they, you try to steal their social, when they try to steal your Social Security money. Better yet, I suggest, he could have framed the midterms around an aggressive push for the public health care option he promised during the 2020 campaign. Anybody remember that? That like half, that like the majority probably, or at least a, a clear plurality of time in the Democratic primary debates was spending arguing about exactly what health care should be. Um, Biden's position on that was, oh, we should, uh, we should maintain the private insurance industry, but we should have a, a universal public option for people who want to go on that. And then he completely dropped it. Once he defeated Bernie and, you know, even by the general election, he really dropped it. But certainly he dropped it uh, by the time he took office. He never talks about that anymore. So I say better yet, he could have framed the midterms around an aggressive push for the public health care option he promised during the 2020 campaign and then immediately stopped talking about when he took office. Or better still, he could have gone a step beyond that and adopted Bernie Sanders' call for a system of Medicare for all where the uh, parasitical private insurance companies were taken out of the picture entirely. Why do I say that would be better? Not just because I want Medicare for all, obviously, as a, uh, as a, um, as a democratic socialist. Uh, so obviously I, I, I wish that the president would use his bully pulpit to push for it, 
but because this would have been a really effective way of making the democracy argument. Opinion polls consistently show that these proposals, at least a public option, maybe even Medicare for all, have widespread public support. Surely the fact that they're considered to be unacceptably radical in Beltway politics says something about the state of American democracy. Biden could point out, point to all the polls where a solid majority, even of Republicans, support at least a public option, possibly also Medicare for all. That depends a little bit about how the wording is raised, but like, you know, 56 percent of Republicans say they'd like a, a public option. Um, then the president could ask, if we live in a democracy, why isn't the public people's will being done on this issue? Right. So it's like, yeah, I, you know. That would be, I think, a really effective way of, of raising the democracy issue, where the issue is about, in other words, like, hey, you guys should get to decide what the public policies of this country are. And these assholes over there, the Republican Party, they don't want you to be allowed to get your material needs met like you would if you guys got to, decide, got to call the shots, which is why they want to make this an even less democratic country than it already is through you know, attempts to steal the 2020 election through, uh, you know, laws making it harder to vote, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the reason that Biden and other prominent Democrats haven't done any such thing is that this isn't the kind of pro-democracy message they're really interested in promoting. So a book I always recommend uh, is Thomas Frank's book, Listen Liberal or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People. I do think Frank goes too far in, in sort of idealizing the pre-liberal, pre-neoliberal version of the Democratic Party. For myself, I'm much more of a Norman Thomas guy than an FDR guy, but uh, that's a that's a nitpick. I think as a as a diagnosis of what's wrong with contemporary liberalism, listen, liberal is brilliant. Uh, it pairs very well with his more recent book, "The People Know: A Brief History of Anti-Populism," which is just chef's kiss. Um, both of those I would really strongly recommend that people read, but Frank's argument in Listen Liberal is that the current version of the Democratic Party has been thoroughly shaped by the cultural sensibilities and political worldview of affluent middle-class professionals who have reinterpreted social justice not as a matter of raising the floor for everybody as much as lifting the ceiling, right? Removing any barriers so the best and brightest from each demographic group can rise to the top. And then once the best and the brightest have risen to the top, they can craft the smartest technocratic policy solutions to our problems. Um, think about the 2016 election when liberals never shut up about how Hillary Clinton was supposedly the most qualified candidate who's ever run for president which is, by the way, not even really true in its own terms, right? George H.W. Bush had been the vice president for eight years and was the head of the CIA uh, and uh, had, in fact, in a lot of ways, a much more impressive resume than Hillary Clinton had in 2016. Uh, so, you know, like I said, even on its own terms, it's not really true, but it's, it's certainly, but the larger point is that it's so revealing of how these people think about politics they think about politics, they think about elections, not in terms of clashing ideologies or clashing interests, but as a technocratic job interview, right? Where the candidates are each giving us their CVs and we, you know, we decide uh, you know, which one is more qualified to rule over us, which is a really, in some ways, very profoundly anti-democratic conception of politics. 
because you don't really think that the people should get to decide policy. You think that the people should figure out who the smartest people are so they can empower them and they can figure out the policy. Um, so the harsh but I think not unfair thing I say in the article, I'll just read this paragraph, is they believe in democracy insofar as they believe that democratic politicians shouldn't have elections stolen from them, but they don't really believe in asking a bunch of people who don't have postgraduate degrees and probably haven't even read Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility how they want to solve society's problems. That's why Biden is not reviving his call for a public option or, again, better yet, uh, calling for Medicare for All to cut off the private insurance parasites entirely uh, and saying, look, you, you, know, you the people want this. They, the plutocrats, what FDR called the economic royalists, don't want it. And that's why, in fact, because those people don't believe in democracy. They don't believe in letting you guys decide what our healthcare system is. Uh, that's why they don't do that, because that's just not their conception of democracy, ultimately, would be my argument. Um, okay, so I go on to say right now, Democrats are doing everything short of spraying each other with bottles of champagne to celebrate the results of an election uh, where, well, what I said then was they might have held on to control of the Senate by their fingernails. Now we do know that they did hold on to the Senate by control of the, uh, their fingernails. Because, uh, again, the final tally is going to either be 50-50 Democrat, so it's a majority in the sense that Kamala Harris can break ties, or an actual majority, but the slimmest possible one, 51-49 Democrat, if Warnock wins his runoff. And um, they might, uh, as the time of writing, the New York Times election forecast says the Republicans will probably retake the House. The happy surprise is that they weren't blown out of the water completely by the party that openly wants to slash Medicare and Social Security. That, I will say, this is no longer me reading for the article. This is me just further editorializing on it. That's pretty fucking pathetic. Okay, so if Democrats do... Uh, so. Well, I said if Democrats do manage to hold on to the Senate, now we know that they did hold on to the Senate, right? Because it's either going to be 50-50 or 51-49, but either way, since Kamala Harris could break ties, it's a majority for functional purposes. Uh, but a big part of the reason the Democrats were able to just barely hold on to the Senate is that John Fetterman beat uh, Dr. Oz for the seat in Pennsylvania. And this is really a remarkable victory and one that can tell us a lot about what a better approach than the one most Democrats are taking right now might look like if they wanted to take it. Now, I don't really get into this. I'm ready for the Daily Beast. This is um, I want to make the sort of most kind of normie-friendly basic point on this. If I were writing for Jack about it, I probably would have gone on to point out that, of course, they, there's, a reason, you know, there's a reason that they don't want to, which is why we need to build a left alternative that can beat these assholes in primaries and can you know, we could do this better approach. But um, in any case, um, putting that aside for now, right, let's look at what Fetterman did. Fetterman outperformed Biden's 2020 vote in almost every county in the state, uh, including in rural areas where Trump did really well in 2020. That's a particularly impressive accomplishment when you remember that the man had a stroke early in the campaign that left him with auditory processing issues many observers mistook for cognitive impairment. Uh, probably, you know, 
probably the best objection that I've seen people make since I wrote this is that, well, um, Fetterman still ran several points behind, you know, Shapiro against Mastriano. So, uh, that's, uh, so, and, and Shapiro is more moderate, but the reason I'm not ultimately swayed by that point is that one Shapiro didn't have a stroke, right? So just in terms of candidate, uh, you know, public perception of candidate quality, he was, you know, I mean, he's, he started out with a giant edge on Fetterman there. And two, um, essentially no money was spent on attack ads against uh, Shapiro, whereas $100 million was spent on attack ads against Fetterman. So considering those massive disadvantages, even though he didn't do as well as Shapiro, the fact that he still did so much better than Biden in a presidential year when voter turnout is higher and favors Democrats, like, um, I think it's still a pretty remarkable accomplishment on Fetterman's part. So why was he able to do this? Well, I say in the article, and this is important to acknowledge, elections are never laboratory experiments which we can test individual factors in isolation from everything else. There are all sorts of reasons why Fetterman won, and in fact, you know, they have to do with Fetterman and all sorts of reasons that Oz lost that have to do with Oz. And if you reran the election with one or two other variables changed, you might well end up with a different result. In other words, you know, if you had a Republican candidate who actually lived in Pennsylvania instead of New Jersey and wasn't literally a snake oil salesman and, um, you know, knew that Wegners wasn't Wegmans and, you know, all of that stuff. Right. Um, yeah. And since he, uh, Rich says in, uh, in the chat, Mastriano was a terrible candidate as well. Uh, certainly true. Um, you know, and I should say, like, I don't really get into this too much in this article, but like, look, given that I think that what they were doing didn't work very well, um, you know, they finally pivoted to talk about social security the last week before the election, but most of what they were doing before wasn't, you know, a lot of it at least wasn't very effective. I think the democracy and on the ballot stuff wasn't very effective. Uh, why did, um, why did Democrats do as well as they did, which is to say maintain the status quo in the Senate, only lost by a little bit of the House? Uh, you know, my explanation for this, and this isn't original to me. In fact, this is boringly conventional wisdom is basically two things. One is abortion. Um, Republicans disastrously overreached and, and freaked out a lot of the public on abortion and to candidate quality that Donald Trump is the Republican kingmaker right now. And he is not good at picking winners, right? He, he picks some pretty amazing losers. Okay. So why was Fetterman able to do so well? Again, lots of reasons why Fetterman won, lots of reasons why Oz lost that are specific to Fetterman, you know, Fetterman and Oz, if you reround the election with one or two other variables change, you might very well end up with a different result. But it's hard to deny that one important reason Fetterman was able to do so well is that he has left populist instincts that are utterly foreign to the mentality of way too many other Democratic politicians. So, for example, he certainly supports equal rights for trans people, but it's impossible to imagine him using terms like birthing people. Uh, he tends to speak in very like simple, direct ways. When uh, I say in the article, uh, self-plagiarizing something I said a while ago, Jackman, that when Fetterman spoke out against a law that would have prevented trans teens from participating in high school sports, uh, he explained his position in the way that you might explain your progressive views about something like that to a conservative friend at a bar. Say the law was cruel and calling it a distraction from Pennsylvania's real problems, which I think is exactly the right approach. Um, and when it comes to those real problems, 
has sometimes shown himself willing to appeal to deep wells of popular anger. Here I'm just reading directly from the article against the plutocrats and what Carlin called that big club. In an op-ed for the Pennsylvania Times leader, he urged the criminal prosecution of executives at food, pharmaceutical, and oil and gas companies who have been, quote, gouging customers at the pump and at the grocery store, unquote, even as they brag to investors in earnings calls that they've been raking in record profits. I'm not suggesting that Federman is perfect. He isn't. Uh, where I say he isn't in the article, I actually link to something that I wrote, giving Fetterman a hard time about some of his foreign policy positions. Um, and um, yeah, that's great, since he says he showed up uh, on more than a few strike lines in rural Pennsylvania. So yeah, I have written criticisms of Fetterman, some of Fetterman's foreign policy positions. I think that there are lots of ways in which Fetterman is more moderate than we might like uh, as democratic socialists. But Nevertheless, I think his success, even after having a stroke, even after having his post-stroke debate performance, where it was really easy to confuse his post-stroke linguistic processing issues with um, uh, with actual cognitive impairment, uh, even with $100 million spent against him in attack ads, I think the fact that he was able to do so well, I think, is a real advertisement for his kind of left populist uh, style of political communication. And I end the article by saying that his Against the Odds Success in a Purple State offers a tantalizing glimpse into what might be possible elsewhere if Democrats ever get sick of narrowly averted disaster and decide at long last to try something else. Okay, if anybody wants to call in, uh, this would be the uh, the time to do it, and I am happy to take a couple calls before we um, we end for today. Um, but uh, I guess while I am waiting to see if anybody does that, I will just kind of say a little bit about what I'm working on for Jacobin, which maybe uh, expands the argument of the Daily Beast article a little bit and in a in a slightly different way. Um. Oh, yeah, and I missed uh, Antonio's comment earlier in the chat. Is there any message the Democratic Party as an institution can find palatable beyond vote for us to stop the Republicans? Well, they have been trying and trying and trying to do that. I uh, remember in 2016, um, Chuck Schumer uh, memorably and, and infamously, and I think uh, this uh, this sentence, frankly, I would like to put on his tombstone, uh, said uh, for uh, uh, this might not be the exact quote, but he said something like, um, uh, "For every you know whatever whatever it was, like laid off steel worker that we lose, um, we're going to pick up uh, two moderate Republicans in the Philadelphia suburbs." And um, man, uh, see how that worked, right? He said that during the 2016 election. Um, and then they basically doubled down on that same approach in the next couple of cycles and granted got more, more, much more mileage out of it in the next couple of cycles than they did in 2016. But it really shows how the fact that they were willing to do that strategy, both when it didn't show any signs of paid off and then when it finally did a bit, although even when it's paid off the most, I mean, we still have these weird messy deadlocks of an election like we had this week, uh, says something I think pretty significant about, um, about how uh, how committed they are to to only doing the sort of like running on the kind of uh, interest neutral sort of abstract appeals to democracy and Donald Trump is a very very bad man 
Uh, I did. I do see I have a caller, Scott. I'll take Scott in just a second, but I did say I was going to preview a little bit what I was working on in the Jacobin article where I'm expanding on some of what I say in the Daily Beast article a little bit. And there I basically sort of, you know, reiterated a different way that what, you know, the sort of current strategy, national strategy of uh, centrist liberals is not really working, right? That we're still getting these weird, messy deadlocks of an election where, like, if you win the Senate by 5149 and lose the House, you still spray your, spray each other with champagne like you just, uh, you know, like, uh, like you just won the Super Bowl. Um, that, okay, so this means that they're, you know, we need a left alternative on the Bernie Sanders model to that could overtake the neoliberal, the sort of dying and decaying neoliberal center and, uh, and defeat the right. And I think that a revitalized left could overtake the center and defeat the right, but only if it's the right kind of left. And I worry that um, we don't have exactly the right kind of left. I will talk about that a little bit after taking the call from Scott, but right now I, um, I want to hear from him. So Scott, what is in your mind? Looks like a little microphone. There we go. Yeah. It had an update that was telling me about my camera. It was trying to get more permission. So I was fumbling around. Uh, no worries. Um, you kind of already answered the question, but uh, I was wondering about your thoughts on kind of the Pied Piper strategy mm -hmm. and whether that will continue and how much of a Russian roulette sort of strategy that is. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Um, yeah, I think it probably will continue because I think that Democrats will conclude from this cycle that it worked because to a certain extent it is. It did, right? It did work everywhere. <laughs> you know, I think there are some like super crazy Trumpists who are beneficiaries of the Pied Piper strategy who did win their races, but, you know, it worked enough that I think it'll encourage Democrats to continue to play that extremely dangerous game. So for anybody who doesn't know what Scott is talking about, when he uses the phrase uh, Pied Piper strategy, um, this this is something that Democrats were doing in uh, back in 2016. Uh, this is part of why we got Trump. I mean, I'm not saying it's a decisive part, but it is part uh, that like this was in. I think the emails that uh, WikiLeaks released uh, that they were trying to sort of prop up Trump, call attention to him, make him their primary enemy. Uh, because they wanted Republicans to nominate him because they thought that Trump would be easier to beat than the other Republicans. And of course, we all know how well that worked out. In other cases, it has worked. But uh, but basically, the Pied Piper strategy is the idea that you're going to entice Republicans to do self-destructive things, that you're going to entice them to, um, you know, like the Pied Piper, getting the rats and then the children off the dock. I'm just going to spoil the end of that story for you. Uh, the uh, That's uh, uh, the you're going to entice the Republicans to nominate the most craziest MAGA-pilled candidates that they can because you think they'll then be easier to beat in the election. But as Scott says, this is really playing Russian roulette, right? Because, of course, the danger is that they are going to nominate those candidates and then those candidates are going to win. And look, if you really think they're that dangerous, why would you take that risk? This is uh, like... You know, I mean, if you think, I mean, go with the kind of most hyperbolic version of like democratic rhetoric. If you think that these these guys are fascists, 
right? That there's a risk that they'll impose fascism. My God, you're going to take that risk just because you think it would be, you'd have like a 10% better chance of beating them than beating some Romney kind of candidate. Um, and even if you don't think that, right, which I suggested the article, I think that is a little hyperbolic. Um, and I'm not convinced about how useful some of those analogies are. They don't have to be out and out fascist to be really dangerous. Right? I mean, we we know that these guys can do all kinds of awful things. Trump did all kinds of awful things. You know, we know that uh, there's all sorts of, um, you know, economic savagery like the social security cuts and sort of performative social cruelty towards marginalized groups. Think about the sort of laws that Republican state legislatures have passed to do things like uh, go after uh, trans teenagers, um, you know, pass like really brutally extreme anti-abortion laws, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And even though I don't think that like out and out fascism is in the cards, look, democracy is a spectrum. Um, There's something I say in the Jackman article I'm working on, like, you know, just great, even graded on a curve for sort of late capitalist parliamentary democracies, we could call maybe like Putin's Russia one. They're technically multi-party elections, but nobody takes them seriously. And then maybe like somebody like someplace like Denmark a ten, right? And the United States is maybe a six point five, uh, somewhat arbitrarily, but just like yeah, it's more democratic than like Russia is, but it's way less democratic than like European countries where there are much lower barriers of entry for new political parties and um, the elections in some ways are much less corrupt and uh, strong labor unions mean that working people have a better chance to influence the political process. Um, You know, we're already a 6.5 and even if, you know, like a sort of zero or whatever negative number we assign to Hitler's Germany or Mussolini's Italy isn't really the cards. We could totally degrade from a 6.5 to a 6 or a 5.5, right? Like, that's unfortunately very easy to imagine. I think some of those Republican voting laws in different states point in that direction. I think that some of the harebrained schemes Republicans were coming up with to try to steal the 2020 election point in that direction. Uh, so, yeah, if you think that those things are would be really bad, then you shouldn't play with fire like this. That is an incredibly dangerous game to be played and a really irresponsible one. And the fact that Democrats are playing it, it's like, look, this time for the most part, it worked out in 2016. It didn't work out. If they do it even more in 2024, which unfortunately I think is pretty likely, uh, it might work out uh, even less, right? We will just have to wait and see. But yeah, I, I think, um, I think you are invited to disaster uh, when you play that game. So like a really concrete example of what Pie Piper strategy looks like in practice comes from my home state, uh, Michigan. In the upper Midwest, there's this, uh, there's this giant uh, grocery store chain called Meyer. People usually call it Meyers, although there's no apostrophe S in the, uh, in the actual like name of the signs. It's just Meyer, um, which is like a sort of Walmart-ish, a big grocery store chain. It's very all-purpose the way that Walmart is. In fact, it's one of the things I believe uh, Sam Walton was actually uh, got the idea from Walmart from like, you know, hey, I could do this with dimmer lighted and lower wages, right? Um, But uh, that's, I used to work there uh, for a while. Uh, It's 
yeah, it's 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 unionized, but otherwise it's it's very Walmart like. Um, and at that point, at least, it might still be. It was something like the uh, fourth largest or fifth largest employer in the state of Michigan after the state government and the big three auto companies. Uh, so the scion of that is this guy, Peter Meyer, who was in somewhere in western Michigan. He was a congressman, a Republican congressman, of course. And uh, he was one of the few Republicans who voted to impeach Trump. And uh, he was defeated by a super baggy candidate whose name I do not remember off the top of my head. But uh, it was really remarkable. If you watch the ads, uh, the DNC paid for this ad. They actually paid a lot of money for this ad. Like the DNC essentially contributed more to Meyer's MAGA challenger than Donald Trump did uh, through the money they poured into this ad. They ran against him. If you watch the ad, it's pretty amazing, right? Because it's like I'm obviously – joking just a little bit but this is barely even a paraphrase it's like whatever Myers challenger's name was i don't remember you know but such and such guy is too conservative and patriotic for western michigan he loves donald trump and america too much you can't vote for him paid for by the democratic national committee it could not have been more obvious that it was actually an ad for the challenger there was like the thinnest possible pretense that it was an ad against him. And this is the kind of thing they did a lot around the country. Again, it might have, you know, they might have gotten, going with the Russian roulette analogy, they might have gotten the empty chamber in most races around the country where they tried this, this cycle. But, uh, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It is a incredibly dangerous, irresponsible game to play. So I think I'm going to cut it off there for today. Um, but uh, when the Jacobin article that I teased just a little bit comes out, I'll certainly do another one then. I want to see if I can get David Griscom on because he wrote a really good article about Texas politics that just came out of Jacobin. Uh, I believe um, I you know, want to make sure that that's the article I was looking at. Uh, so, And then, uh, you know, obviously it's not going to be all electoral politics all the time, but probably the next one or two will be because we are right after the election. I do want to get back to doing more Marxy episodes and stuff like that, but uh, that is what is in the uh, uh, that is uh, what is on the agenda for the immediate future. Uh, thank you, Scott, for the call. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, oh. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Scott, for the call. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, please do check out the main show on YouTube tonight at 8, where uh, Ryan Zitgraf, uh, Jordan Dubin, uh, Coda Neutron, and I are going to be doing a live stream about the uh, uh, Robert Eggers movie, The Northman, at 8 o'clock Eastern. should be a lot of fun. Um, again, we'll probably do one of these in the next uh, day or two. Uh, I'd be pretty surprised if the next one wasn't by Tuesday at the latest. So I'll see people then.